I am thankful also to be here, thankful to be speaking before you as we transition back to Serbia. Um, the Lord has been incredibly good to us through all of you. Uh, I'm very specially, especially thankful for my friends from Serbia, my co-workers. Dobro došli u Kentucky, u našu crkvu. Nadam se da ovo poruko će biti korisno za vas. I stvarno, zahvalan sam za vas. I slavu Bogu za tebe. Za vas. Ne samo za tebe, za vas. That's basically, hey, y'all. Serbian is a very complicated language. You've got to really, you've got to pull a lot out of it. But I am thankful. Pošalimo pozdravi takože. We send greetings also to, to the church back there. That's what Miro did was very, very customary and very important. Uh, and I'm thankful for Miro's testimony, for what he said about the school. As Pastor Mark said, it is his work. It is marvelous in our eyes. As I thought about what to preach on this morning, I considered all the things the Lord has shown us in this past year, especially all the ways that you as our body, our family, have ministered to us. What could I say now as an insider who came back a little bit of as an outsider but now find it very painful to return back to Serbia in some ways uh, as we leave you? I could encourage you as a body of Christ, trust me, in many, many ways. I could encourage you in the fellowship not only that you have, but the fellowship that you've shown us, that you've had us in your homes, you've invited us to everything that goes on, you've included us and warmly, warmly welcomed us back again as a family. I could encourage you as a body about your prayer. You know, one of the things that, has, that struck me early on was I had forgotten how much you pray. And not just that you pray, but that you pray at the drop of a hat. You pray instantly. When someone says, hey, will you pray for me something? You'll say, let's stop right now. It doesn't matter if you're in a grocery store or at Walmart, which Meryl thinks is my favorite store, or, or anywhere. You will pray at the drop of a hat. And it's a reminder to me to do that in Serbia or, or here or wherever. I'm thankful for the teaching. We're thankful for that. And you know, obviously, the teaching from the pastors, from Mark, Pastor Keith, Pastor Withrow, uh, Pastor Thad, but not just the pastors. I'm thankful for the teaching from all of you. Everywhere we go, every interaction that we've had with you, we actually walk away debriefing and writing notes from it. For the past year, we've done that because we've actually been so starved for good preaching and good teaching, so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for your generosity. I could commend you for that. You give not only out of your abundance, but you give out of your lack. Um, for your respect for a husband and wife and marriage, how you foster and nourish, nourish this. I could praise you and thank, and thank the Lord and encourage you in your love for missions, which is constantly undying and growing bigger and bigger, even as I've seen it this year. So you might be thinking, well, with all this praise that you're giving us, what's the bad news? Maybe that's what the sermon is about. And the truth is there is no bad news. There is no bad news. But I do think there is something that we can all focus on, in an increasing way, in an increasingly gospel-hating world, as we all leave this church, as we all go out of those doors, and as we all return to the task that the Lord has given each one of us, whether it's in the world here, in Kentucky, and other parts of the United States, or overseas in Serbia. So, and especially uh, something that I've decided to focus on is something basic, something that is always relevant, and I think particularly strikes at who we are, especially in America, and how to live as we go forward. 
So the passage that was read to you, that Aidan read to you, is John 3. It's a familiar passage. All of us know the first half of that chapter. Jim Criswell and I were talking about that. We, we were very familiar with the first part. The second part, not quite so much. We don't think about that so much. But it is a familiar passage. And in it we have a, a familiar description. Jesus and his disciples are in Judea and they're baptizing. John the Baptist is also baptizing there. So they're both participating in baptisms. But there's an argument that breaks out about baptism. It's very unusual. It's very odd, and we'll see some of the aspects of that. The argument and the disciples make an attempt, we see, to provoke Jesus, or John's jealousy of Jesus, which also is odd. We see the humility of John the Baptist that we've already seen throughout the whole book of, of the book of John. We see John the Baptist talk about the preeminence of Jesus, which is reminiscent to us of the first chapter of Hebrews. We see John's conclusion of how to live. But I want to concentrate those, this morning on what has been said to be one of the greatest utterances to ever fall from human lips. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Well, there are several questions that we actually should ask about this. The first question we ask should, that we should ask is, is this passage applicable to us? Now, the idea of what is decreasing and the definition of what is de decreasing we can talk about, and very few believers would question, is this actually for me? Most believers I've met say, oh, this is a great passage. Uh, I appreciate this passage, and we can relate to it. But it is worth investigating, at least is this for us. So, what is the idea and the definition of decreasing? Does God mean for this to be applicable to me, or is it specific to John the Baptist? Because it seems pretty specific to John the Baptist. Well, in one sense, this is specific to John the Baptist. It's based on the question that they asked, or based on the question, John's disciples, they seem to think that Jesus and John were rivals. John had already lost disciples to Jesus, and if we go back to chapter 1, we'll see that, including the disciple Andrew. That was the first disciple we read about in chapter 1 in John that he lost to Jesus. Maybe, it could be, that his disciples, they just had enough. You know, we've had enough of this, we're losing all the disciples. It seems that way as they were talking, but the fact is, it wasn't a competition. John's task in life, actually, was being fulfilled, and he's made that clear. Now, the exact dispute of this argument, we're not sure of. And I'm actually thankful they don't talk about that because we can relate it to us in a better way. It's possible this Jew that's being talked about maintained the superiority of Jesus' baptism over John's. Well, this would be a problem because then it would require John's disciples to leave him and to go to Jesus, which is exactly what was happening. And the disciples of John the Baptist thought they were doing the right thing by protecting John protecting his ministry, they thought. The exact cause of this, though, as I mentioned, it doesn't matter anyway because there are millions of ways, are there not, that we are tempted to put ourselves forward and justify ourselves in life. John's disciples, even though they were theologically knowledgeable, even though they had been with John the Baptist, even though their ministry had been about Jesus, they didn't come across that way, did they? Their tone was not joyful, but it almost sounds resentful as they spoke to John. Somehow, somehow, they found it intolerable for them, for Christ, 
to act so independently and gather more disciples than John is. When they said, they even said, all men are going to him. This is not something that they meant to be joyful. This is, a, this is an indignant expression. Everyone's going to him. Look at what he's doing. They were not joyful in this at all. And it's strange to us on this side of things with Christ in view. It's odd. How could they do this? How could they? Their whole ministry was about Jesus. How could they go to John the Baptist and say, well, we have a problem with this? But I think it can happen more tacitly, more discreetly than you might even imagine because of this. The root or principle of this passage is this. Our focus in life is Christ. It is not the protection of our own interest. And we have no idea how often we seek to protect our own interest in life. It's constant and it's every day. For all of us, the temptation to put ourselves first, to stick up for at least what we think is right, is great. To have things arranged the way we want them. That's the temptation to increase ourselves and not Jesus. When the question is asked, do we need to apply this to ourselves? This is what we're really asking. Do I have to decrease? I mean, after all, I'm not in any sort of competing position with Jesus like John was. Is this really meant for me? Or maybe you might think, well, this is just for pastors or this is just for missionaries because they're actually in ministry. And that kind of, I can see how that would be a temptation for them. What does an assembly line worker or a real estate agent or a doctor or a teacher, what does this have to do with me? Am I, am I involved with this? He must increase, but I must decrease. Consider this, as Christians, how could it be that we're not required to decrease for Christ? To be less of ourselves so that Christ can be more? This passage is for every one of us, isn't it? We're all called to decrease no matter who we are. And I could show and extract many passages to prove this point. Many passages, but I'll choose two. So Philippians 2.3 is one passage. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Others more significant than yourselves. It sounds like decreasing to me. 1 Corinthians 1.28 and 29, God chose what is low and despised in the world. And no one can testify to that more than me. Even things that are not to bring to, things nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Well, that also sounds like decreasing. Those are just two of the passages. This is applicable to all of us because the temptation to look out for ourselves or our own thinking or our own lives, that's all of ours too. We enter in that with John the Baptist. Uh, disciples. Now, most of you already believe that this applies to us. We're already on the same page with that. I haven't met anybody yet that has a problem with this, any, any believer. So that moves us, us on to the next question. What does decreasing not look like? Well, that may be a little more realistic, a, a little more down to home for us. Do we have to decrease because life is supposed to be miserable? Nothing but sacrifice and giving up things in order to do what's right? Or is it because I'm good for nothing and shouldn't be really even a part of the picture? We'll investigate those ideas a little bit. But let's first see what decreasing it's not. Decreasing is not do less and less. What do we have here? John was baptizing. Jesus was also there in person with his disciples. The crowds were following Jesus and they were leaving John. And what does John do? 
when he meets two temptations. Now, for most of us, power and money are not very tempting when it comes to taking over the world. Many of us just don't have access to all that much power and money, so it's not a temptation anyway. But those aren't the temptations that we face. What does John do when he's confronted with the temptation to defend himself or the realization that it's not about him? Oh, that's, that's more where we are, isn't it? That, that strikes more close to home. That's familiar. Does John decide that his work is now finished and he's no longer needed? Does he, does he say, well, let's pack it up, guys. Let's go. I guess our, the gig is up. Our work is over here. Does he become despondent or depressed? John's disciples aren't, their, their actions really aren't that weird after all, because that's what we would do if we felt threatened. We'd become despondent. We'd become depressed. We might sulk and move into ourselves. But these actions, these temptations, they're not that all. We do these things. But John the Baptist kept going. He likely already knew that Jesus was there baptizing. They probably weren't that far away. He knew it was already going on, and yet he continued baptizing anyway, knowing he wasn't told to quit yet. And you know what this tells me, what this shows me? Do not be convinced that God has set you aside when you don't know that. You don't know what God has for you to do. You don't know what his purposes are. God has given each of us a work, great or small, exciting or mundane. And you know, it's not over until he makes it undoubtedly clear that it's over. You can pray the same prayer that I pray in Serbia, and I have for eight years. Lord, do not keep me here one day longer than I should be, and do not take me away one day sooner than I should be. We can all pray that wherever we are, not just a missionary field prayer. We can all pray that. You don't know the reason why God has you where you are, why he's asked you to go through what you're going through, what he's doing with you, or even what he's keeping you from. You may be the only one praying for somebody, the only one witnessing to somebody, the only light of any sort of gospel where you are. You may be the only person there. Or you may be being spared from a really terrible situation that God has you there for. So decreasing is not just because we're to have a miserable life. Second, decreasing is not self-abasement in a carnal sense. It's, it's not putting yourself verbally down all the time. That's not what decreasing is about. That's an affront to who we are in Christ. That's usually false humility, but really what it does is it negates. It negates the fact that we are made in God's image and we were worth the sacrifice of his son, does it not? A sober view of ourselves is good, but in history, we have examples from history Pastor Thad knows about this. He's taught everybody with this in the Sunday school. Monks and ascetics have attempted to decrease by denying their physical needs and their desires. For some, this meant food. They, wouldn't, they would reduce their diet to a few seeds and some water and certainly nothing tasty. For others, things like self-flagellation, hitting yourself on the back until you bled, until your back was, was opened up. Because decreasing their comfort, decreasing to them meant pain decrease in the comfort. Some self-denial can be useful in some cases, such as fasting. We're told to do that. But you know, self-abuse is self-focused, and it's temporal, and it does nothing for the kingdom. So third, decreasing is also not having a morbid hyper-focus on your own sin. 
If you focus on yourself for pleasure or if you obsess over your own sin so that you never move past sin to Christ, the enemy doesn't really care. It's all the same to him, whether you're focusing on your sin in that way or you're focusing on your pleasure. What are you focusing on? Yourself. It doesn't matter. We can't think we're holier because we think about and obsess about our sin so much we don't move past that and move to Christ. Decreasing is also not self-imposed poverty, necessarily. It's not relinquishing of responsibilities, necessarily. It's not necessarily those things. So is decreasing saying that I have to decrease so that Christ can increase? Well, there's a question we haven't thought about. That he won't actually be able to increase unless I decrease. Is it saying that? I must decrease so that he can increase? Is that the point of this? Is his, decrease, is his increase in direct proportion to my decrease? And the answer is no. Christ is already the highest. Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him what? The name that is above every name. He has increased. Christ is the highest already. He doesn't need he doesn't need our decrease. Our decreasing and Christ increasing, it's not like a seesaw for Christ. It's not required to where one person has to be on one side and the other person has to be on the other and one must go down for the other one to go up. When I was about six years old, my mother put me in a daycare center that was run by Catholic nuns and they wore the entire habit, the whatever you call this on the top and the dress and everything. And I remember one of the nuns one time wanted me, she, was, she wanted me to learn how to seesaw, I guess, and she put me on one end of it, and she went around, and she got on the other end, and then she dropped. Now, I don't know if she intended for this, it probably wasn't much, but my heart stopped, and I thought I was going to hit the clouds. To this day, I cannot ride on a seesaw with a nun, no matter how much, <laughs> no matter how much they beg me, but... It is not like that at all. Decreasing is not for Christ like a seesaw. Well, how about this question? Here's a question. Can we both increase? Okay, maybe it's not dependent on my decrease, but can we both increase? Well, there's a question. Why not? Why can't we both increase, Christ and I? Well, on the surface, though, this sounds really like a selfish thing to say, doesn't it? Who would say such a thing? But I would challenge that it's not really that unusual, even if it's done in our subconscious. I think these thoughts are actually the very thoughts that prompt the health and wealth gospel, the desire to have our best life, that we deserve everything we can think of, that our increase is utmost in the mind of God, that what John the Baptist should have said is this, he must increase and I must increase along with him. He should have said that. Christ will increase, but he will not compete with our pride. So, amen to that. I wish Byron were here. That would, his voice is the voice that travels across the ocean. I want you to know that. We hear him loud and clear when we're watching online. From our perspective, it is us or him. And we may not think about it, but in our actions, we can actually belie the fact that we also want to increase. Also, further, we don't decrease so that Christ can increase in value. He is the only begotten of the Father, true God of true God. He doesn't increase in value. He also doesn't increase in status. Christ has ascended and sits where? 
at the right hand of the Father. No one comes to the Father except through him. Well, that's a lot of what decreasing does not look like. Then what does decreasing look like? Again, I can show you lots of verses. I'll, I'll refer to two. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like what? Treasure. Treasure hidden in a field that a man found and covered up, and in his joy he sells all that he has. That's what decreasing is. It's treasure that in our joy we sell all that we have to get it. Galatians 2.20, decreasing is this. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's decreasing. It's not me who's living anymore. It's Christ who's living. The increase and decrease that this refers to is an attitude, an approach to the Christian life. It's his preeminence in my life, my actions, my motivations, and consequently, the furthering of his gospel. It's Christ first in all things. My heart, my desire, my choices, my feelings, my preferences, my interaction with the world. It's as John Lynn said a couple of weeks ago, it's a permanent thought of, it's not about me. The decrease of the Baptist speaks of not any real decay in us, but this is what it's talking about. The decrease is a decrease in seeking esteem from other people, and other people includes family and friends. It's a decrease in craving that respect and maneuvering to get it. That's the decrease. It's a lessening of constantly seeking what we think is best for us. It's being more concerned about the kingdom moving forward than what's important for us. That's what decreasing is. And especially like John the Baptist, it's the killing of habit-forming envy, of having or being something that God has determined that you should not have or be, even if he's determined somebody else should. That's what decreasing is. That's why I entitled this sermon, A Faithful Lessening. It almost sounds like we're going to be teaching you a lesson, but what it means is a faithful decrease, a faithful lessening. Well, it is in this sense that we must decrease, so Christ increases. John speaks as if his, as if his disciples ought to know this. Well, we should know this. All of Christ's disciples should know this. Verse 28, he says, you yourselves. That's emphatic. He's saying, think about what you're saying. Think about the role you play in the kingdom. They're going to him saying, hey, wait a minute. Jesus is getting more disciples. What do we do about this? What should you do about this? Think about what witness you've already heard. Do you honestly think it's about your or my honor, our increase, our success, our justice? It's like he's saying, are you kidding me? Did you actually come to me thinking I would have a problem with this? Because they did. John then makes it simple for us as he can. He must increase and I must decrease. It doesn't get simpler than that. He points out that the goal of everything we do and think in life in the world is that Jesus Christ is first and we are last. Why? Why is that? Verse 31. His goal in writing the gospel, John's, is to show that Jesus is the only Christ, the only anointed one. We never need to forget he is the creator. We are the created. We are from the earth. We are the dirt, just like the hymn we sang related to. Verse 32, men reject him just as his disciples are tempted to do by complaining to John because we can't seem to decrease ourselves. Verse 33, we're to decrease because it proves the fact of Jesus' glory is true. Verse 34, we're all sent with a common message. Whoever is sent speaks the truth of God. John, as a forerunner, us as messengers, Christ as Savior. 
Verse 35, who is it the Father loves here in this, in this passage? Verse 35, who does the Father love? He loves the Son. The Father loves the Son, and what does He do? He gives all things into His hands. We don't need to move quickly into, but wait, the Father loves me too. This is not the time for that. We step back because the Father loves the Son. But lest we get depressed and thinking, well, how am I, now I'm left out of it. Lest we feel left out. Even here, we have an inclusion from the loving God. Jesus has had the success of disciples given to him. That's what this whole argument is about. Jesus has had the success of disciples, of people given to him. Who are those people? You. You're, you're the point of the argument. You were given to Christ. Even in that, the love for his son, he includes you. He includes me. This is why we are to decrease while he increases. So, that brings us to the next point. How do I decrease? Lots of thoughts here, but there is one thing, especially in the West, I think, especially in America, and it seems to be the base of many of our struggles, and is one palpable way for us to decrease. That's this right here, our rights. Rights are unique, very, very important to Americans, Christian or not. They actually define our American culture and our values, our rights. How do our rights relate to decreasing for the kingdom? Well, you might be thinking either I'm going to be advocating that we be militant about our Christian rights or else I'm going to say, well, our rights are evil. We need to get, need to get rid of all of them. Well, it's neither, but it's also a little bit of both. So first, I think it's important that I clarify what we consider our rights. There's societal rights, and then there's personal rights. Societal rights are those things like in our Bill of Rights. They're guaranteed to citizens of our society and their objective. Freedom of religion, speech, just to name a few, freedom of press, right to keep and bear arms in order to maintain a well-regulated militia, uh, the right to no quartering of soldiers. That just means if Patrick Rowe wants to have a sleepover, you have the right to say no. <laughs> right to due process of law, the right to a speedy and public trial. Those are, those are societal rights, but that's different. That's different than what we've come to know and consider personal rights. That's a little fuzzier, more subjective. From the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, that very respected theological journal, rights are things like this. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> a right to choose. These are the personal rights that that philosophical journal has. This is what it means. A right to choose, a right to vote, to work, to strike. A right to one phone call, to a right to operate a forklift, a right to asylum, a right to equal treatment before the law, to feel proud of what one has done, a right to exist, to sentence an offender to death, to launch a nuclear strike first, to a distinct genetic identity, to a sexual orientation, and now a gender, of course, a right to believe one's own eyes, to pronounce a couple, husband and wife, a right to be left alone, a right to go to hell one's own way. Those are our personal rights. The problem we have as believers can happen in several ways. First, when our individual desires and opinions and preferences get conflated with societal. So we mix up our personal with the society's rights. Second, when these rights are confused with Christianity until they actually all become the same thing. Our personal rights and Christianity become the same. And then third and worst is when the Christian life is subsumed under these rights so that Christ decreases as actually a part of our thinking. In other words, the rights come underneath our Christian, or our Christian rights come underneath it. 
and our rights end up dictating our behavior instead of Christ dictating our behavior. For us on the mission field especially, personal rights is one of the biggest ways that I have to decrease. We were first exposed to this in a little book entitled, Have We No Rights? A Frank Discussion of the Rights of Missionaries. It was written in 1957 by Mabel Williamson with China Inland Mission, a little 83-page book. It's an amazing little book, and it will put you in your place, this lady did. In it, she brought out several areas that we protect, internal rights we may feel like we deserve, or that it never occurs to us to just give up, even for the kingdom. We just don't think about it. Like what? What are some of the rights that we cling to? Well, keep in mind, some of these aren't, necess or these aren't necessarily evil, but they become that way when we put them foremost in all of our life, and they dictate our behavior. The right to a normal standard of living, to work when I want, to define normal standards according to what I desire to live like, to be fulfilled, or at least not bored in my job, to move my family to work wherever there's a good job. It can get in the way of Christ increasing when we don't consider excuse me, how our job, our hours, our location may impact the kingdom. When I say kingdom, though, I'm not necessarily talking about just evangelism, not just how it affects evangelism, how it affects our family, our usefulness at church, our ability to mentor and disciple. When our standard of living has to be foremost, it can lead to an increase in self. About the right to ordinary safeguards of good health. Well, how could that be? I mean, we all need good health, good grief. How radical am I going to be up here? This can be more impactful when you're living in a different country. It feel, you feel it more. Being previously in the medical industry, it was a big concern of mine. I've personally seen this right alone prevent people from moving to the mission field in Serbia. Good health, though, can include things like emotional health. And we can think a lot more liberally about something like that. And we can protect it more than we think. Well, how is that? Well, we may want downtime or me time foremost before all things. We crave the ability to check out and not be bothered. We prefer text messages over phone calls. Why? Well, because they're less intrusive in our lives. We may become inordinately absorbed with the Internet. All this can be done in the name of emotional health when really it may be more about self. But decreasing is allowing yourself to be caught up with people when you really just want to move on. Maybe it's that talker at church, or maybe it's just somebody who just needs a listening ear. Uh, I know a friend who said that she was going to the YMCA to work out, and the phone rang, and she thought, I haven't worked out in so long. I just want to go work out. I'm not asking. It's not asking that much. But she stopped. She said, no, I need to do this. And she answered the phone, and she said, that phone call, she couldn't tell me who it was, but she said the result of that phone call, it it. It affected things for a long, long time simply because she put someone else before herself. And she thought, you know, I can wait. I can wait on working out. And this leads to the next right we may feel that we need to protect, the right to my own time. I've personally seen this the most with the recent attention given to the idea of introversion and extroversion. I know a sent missionary who refused to interact with nationals except briefly using the fact he was introverted as an excuse. I myself am tempted to do this all the time, to fall back on this reason for avoiding interactions with others. Because personally, I think most people actually are introverted. I don't think most people are extroverted. We're just in varying degrees. So if this is the case and we use this as an excuse, then it becomes a problem. There's no problem with being introverted. That's fine. That's actually helpful to know how you operate. 
Introversion is okay. But pushing ourselves out of that box is a way of decreasing for Christ's sake. It may be overtly missions. It may be simply going to someone's house or having a phone call or giving up an evening on our own that we wanted. It means giving up personal time for Christ. Jesus will give you the alone time you need. He'll make sure you have it. It's only that we have our day planned out and we don't want our plans interfered with because when they are, we sulk, we make ourselves miserable just because our time has been disposed of by somebody else and not by us. Well, how about the right to a normal home life? You can decrease yourself by not having a normal home life based on the behavior of everyone else around you. Live at peace with your spouse, with your children. Don't give vent to your baser nature at home like everybody else who is normal. Think about what advances the kingdom in your own homes before you think about what, is, what advances the kingdom in the world or in another country. That's what I need to do. These are just a few. We could have a chat group on this and probably go on for days. But you can meditate on these. We may have the right to do many things, but Paul addressed this in 1 Corinthians 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is what I'm advocating. We have no rights that surpass the increase of Christ. Everything is expendable. Everything can be sacrificed. And this is very difficult to accept many times, especially for me. What I've seen is that on the mission field, it's not loneliness or hardships or lack of the familiar or language. It's not these things that make a missionary, make me suffer and fail. The missionary's problem is something far less self-serving and far more mundane. It's something that'll hit you right where you live. The missionary has to give up having his own way. He has to give up having any rights. He has, in the, to, in the words of Jesus, he has to fully deny himself. But we've been told this already from a good example of another missionary. Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And he goes on from there. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Or is it just I and Barnabas who have no right? But then he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. In other words, no rights that I might win more of them. Let me tell you something. If you are willing to give up your own rights and conform to somebody else's, even though you may not see the reason for it, if you're willing to do that, you've come a long, long way in decreasing for the sake of Christ. Just keep that in mind. But besides rights, are there other ways that we can decrease, that Christ may increase? Well, sure. Being willing to be taken advantage of, mistreated, being willing to be misunderstood or offended, when it may cause Christ to increase, that's how we can decrease. When we realize that what we consider mundane, Jesus does not consider mundane. The least we can do, he, he calls us to do. It's the small and significant things that may be the hardest. Love your husband, Love your wife as Christ loves the church, of course. But that's hard to conceptualize sometimes. Some of us, many of us, maybe most of us need to start much more simple than that. Don't be overbearing. Guard your words. Have a purposeful marriage. Put that internet filter on your computer. Those are much more practical to conceptualize. In one of the many breakfasts that Pastor Keith Withrow has had at Old South Barbecue, that I've been the beneficiary of. He asked a question once, a few weeks ago. 
He asked this, have your prayers been hindered this week because of the way you treat your wife? That's a valid question. Because 1 Peter says your prayers are be hindered by the way you treat your wife. It's very convicting. And it's not just wives. Ask yourself, in what ways am I hindering the kingdom in my relationships? Those are questions to ask. And another way, pray to decrease. Have you ever prayed to decrease? It's a scary prayer. I've heard that praying for patience is a scary prayer because the Lord has to give you trials to make that happen. Praying to decrease is scary for me because I don't know what it's going to demand of my flesh. And then another question is, if, what if the Lord answered our prayers to decrease according to our prayers? Would there be any answer first? Do we pray to decrease? Do we ever pray that? Would we be able to handle it? Trusting in a loving Father means we can pray this without fear. The fact is this. The gospel is increasing. Christ is increasing. His glory is increasing. He increases when we filter our rights and our desires and our preferences through him. He increases when we trust him with impossible prayers. Christ will increase. But the question is this. Are we decreasing? Is the kingdom furthering or are we furthering? So what is the result, finally, of decreasing? What will our decrease result in? Well, regular decrease of self may lead, it may lead to a desire to decrease. I read an illustration of a mother who was coaxing her little daughter to eat her vegetables. But I don't like it, the child objected. But you will, encourage the mother. Just eat it a few times, and you'll get used to it, and it won't be long before you really like it. The child was still for a moment considering that, and then she said, but I don't want to like it. And the question is this, isn't it? That's, that's so descriptive of us. Do we want to like it? Do we want to decrease? Do we really want to decrease that Christ will increase, or is it a burden? Does it feel like a chore to us? Well, it would be easier for us if it actually weren't applicable to us, but it is. So what does decreasing do for us? We may think it's depressing or humiliating, but right before John says, he must increase and I must decrease, what does John the Baptist say? I mean right before, the, the passage, the verse before. He says, his joy is now complete. How many times in your lives has your joy been complete? I could count on two hands the number of times I think my joy has felt complete. But John's joy was complete because he decreased. That's what will result in our decrease. It results in lots of things. It results in rewards. Mark 10, 29, as Pastor Mark read, those we will receive uh, in this life a hundredfold. In this town, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, not only in this life, but in the age to come. I took a poll before I preached. Some of you know this. I asked you, what does decreasing mean to you? And you may, you may find this helpful. I just thought it was interesting. I've never done that before, taken a poll to people before I preached. This is what decreasing means to, to many people, and even to some of you. It means sacrifice, denying myself. It means being humble. Decreasing means realizing it's not about me at all times. Decreasing means seeing more who, of who Christ is and less of who I am. It means fighting sin, not in my own strength, but knowing he will conquer sin in me because he is my strength. It means getting out of the way 
or at least not getting in the way of Christ. It means not thinking about how something doesn't suit you or makes you uncomfortable or how much you don't like it, but how Christ has increased. It means not going along with the world when it actually would be easier for you personally. It means intentionally interacting with the hardest things in your life and not avoiding them because Christ's presence enables you. Those are some of the things that the people of this church and some friends that I've asked have said, including our brother Jeff Cotiller in the hospital right before surgery. A warning about decreasing. This is what not decreasing will, excuse me, will do. John said Christ must increase. There's another must, though, that Christ must do. Christ said it himself, Luke 9, 22. This is what he said. The Son of Man must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. In other words, he must decrease for us. Why? Because we won't. He had to decrease for us so that we would gain the increase of eternal life. You can't be a follower of Christ and a follower of self. But what if we don't? What if we insist on our own way, remaining in the primary position of our decision-making, of our own rights? Well, we lose the joy and the fruit and the peace, true. But if our lives are marked by a refusal to decrease, brothers and sisters, it could be a whole lot worse than that. How's that? How did John end this section? What was the last verse read? Verse 36, the wrath of God remains on us. That was John's last words after he talked about Christ's increase and our decrease. It's a final warning to us about self-focus because the fact is this. A life of self-promotion may be an indicator of our spiritual condition, and the wrath of God remains on those who choose self over Christ. So I'll conclude with this thought. Our Savior, who deserved nothing but increase, gave up all his rights for us. He gave up his rights. While he was here, for your sake, he had no rights. No rights to a soft bed and a, a well-set table. No right to a home of his own, a place where his own pleasure might be sought. No right to choose pleasant, congenial friends, those who could understand him and even sympathize with all the troubles he was having. He had no right to shrink away from filth and sin, to pull his clothes closer around him, excuse me, and turn aside to, to cleaner paths. He had no right to be understood and appreciated, even from those he had poured out all of his love to. He had no right even to be never forsaken by his father, the one who meant more to him than everything. The only right Jesus had was to silently endure shame, spitting, and blows, to take his place as a sinner at the dock, to bear my sins and anguish on the cross. He had no rights. But what about me? Do I have a right to the comforts of life? No. But I do have a right to the love of God for my pillow. Do I have a right to physical safety? No. But I have a right to the security of being in God's will. Do I have a right to love and sympathy from those around me? No, I do not. But I have a right to the friendship of the one who understands me better than I do myself. Do I have a right to be... Do I have a right to be a leader among men? No, but the right to be led by the one to whom I had given my all as a little child with his 
its hand in the hand of the Father? Do I have a right to myself? No. But I have a right to Christ. He must increase because he decreased for us. Sorry. May the Lord be blessed by this. Thank you. Uh, I should close in prayer, I guess. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you gave up your rights. You decreased for our sakes. How amazing it is when we hear this, when we think of this, when we see this. You decreased for us. So we pray that we would be willing to decrease for your sake, to give up our rights, to not think of them as first and foremost, and not just rights, Lord, but also to experience complete joy in knowing that we have lived for you and that you have lived through us. So we offer this to you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.